We are in John chapter 9 this morning. Uh, We saw the first 12 verses last week, and then this week we are uh, taking kind of the middle section. Basically how we're looking at, uh, or how I'm looking at it is, we've got kind of three acts to a play here. We've had act one last week when our uh, formerly blind man has been healed. Act two this week, the investigation into it, and then act three next week when he actually does get to see Jesus for the first time. And so I uh, titled the message this morning, Investigating a Miracle. I don't know if you all are investigation type people or not. I'm sure some of us in this room are, like murder mysteries or documentaries, investigating things, uh, you know, um, crime shows, that kind of thing. I've always enjoyed those things. one of the shows going back that I really enjoy that kind of sparked my interest in it was the original CSI, right? The, the OG CSI, the original, the one that is, started it all. <laughs> then you got NCIS and all the other stuff that, you know, that built on top of it. And you know, they actually brought back Grissom uh, this year to do a new CSI Vegas. Uh, once again, just confirming the idea that they have no new ideas. Just, let's just do it again. Another Hawaii Five O. Yeah, okay. just, just let's just keep recycling it through, right? Um, but actually, Grissom was one of my favorite kind of investigator guys. You know, Gil Grissom was one who didn't allow the fluff to distract him. Right? It wasn't super emotional based. He just looked at the evidence. And he followed the evidence, trying to figure out what happened. He tried to push everything else to the side, not try to bring any of his preconceived notions into it, no pride, any of that, and just let's look at what's happening, let's analyze it, and come to the conclusion of what does the evidence point to. Unfortunately, that's not what we see. That is not what the Pharisees do in our passage today. Unfortunately, they allow some other things to factor in and influence their investigation. That's why our main point today is that a hard heart sees what it wants. A hard heart sees what it wants. They, they dive into this investigation, and we've got three paragraphs here. We've got like 22 verses. We're gonna cover some, some, uh, some breadth today, but instead of reading it all at once, we're gonna um, take it paragraph by paragraph. And so look at the first paragraph with me in John chapter nine, starting in verse 13. It says, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. So we see the beginning of an investigation here. Some people have brought this formerly blind man who now sees to the Pharisees and now they need to dig in and and figure out what happened. And they start asking some questions and developing some initial thoughts and we can see that some of them have started to jump to some different conclusions. They essentially ask two questions. Has a miracle occurred and is he from God or not? The first one, has a miracle occurred? What happened? Tell us what happened. You know, a miracle, the word miracle is one that we overuse a lot. (laughs) 
There's many words that we overuse and the definition of it then gets kind of blurry and muddied and it doesn't mean as much as it used to mean. You know, we use that same thing for the word love. You know, I love my wife and I love pizza. And on some level, we can understand that there's different types of love. And yet at the same time, if, we, if I only said I like pizza and love my wife, it would mean the word love would hold a little bit different and a little bit higher status, right? We do the same thing with miracle. You know, we, we even have titled events as miracles. There was the miracle on ice. It was a hockey game in which the U.S. beat the Soviets in a hockey game right, miraculous event at this hockey game in which the puck never floated and did some weird thing, you know, no one's leg was broken and then miraculously healed. It was just really unlikely that the Americans would win that game. It wasn't unlikely, absolutely, it was very unlikely. But was it miraculous? We just, we, we entitled The Miracle on the Hudson or this plane was, was landed in a very unlikely manner and saved a bunch of lives, and one person was made into a, a celebrity. They made a movie about it. I don't know who you want to play yourself in a movie, but Tom Hanks, not a bad choice. That would be pretty cool, right? But miraculous, right? If, if I took a few steps back here, and I, so just so I can get a little bit of a running start, and I, and I went and I just dove off this stage, some of y'all would say it's a miracle he didn't hurt himself. Hopefully. Now, if, and if I took a few steps back and I, and I jumped and I floated over all of your heads right here and landed in the sound booth back there, some of you would say, that was odd. <laughs> a miracle. Did a miracle transpire? We need to understand two words to really understand what we're talking about here. The first one is providence, okay? God's work within the normal course of nature towards his plan. You see, God doesn't just work through miracles. For me to claim that something is not a miracle does not mean God wasn't working. Our God who created this universe, who is sovereign over this universe, is working to keep the universe, is working all the time sustaining the laws of nature. He's the one who's, who's sustaining the universe. We call it a law of nature. Essentially, it's just our understanding from watching the same thing happen over and over again, like the law of gravity. You hold an apple, you drop an apple, hits the ground. We call it the law of gravity. It's just the way that things normally work. And God can work within those laws of nature. It's called providence. You, know, you might say, well, I was driving in this morning and it was a miracle that I didn't get hit by a car because this one person was driving out of control and it was just a miracle that he just barely missed me. But was it? Could it have been just God working through providence? Again, don't hear me saying this morning that if, it wasn't, if something wasn't a miracle, it wasn't God at work. What we do need to understand is that some things are miracles and some things aren't and we need to decipher the difference. And that's part of what they were working on in this passage. If we define the miracle like this, a supernatural action that couldn't have occurred otherwise. A supernatural action that couldn't have occurred otherwise. Essentially, a miracle is when the laws of nature are working, that God has created and sustained. God chooses to step in and act outside of the law of nature. Then when he is finished, the laws take right back over. 
If there was a miraculous levitation in this room of, of some object that I dropped and it stopped and, and the miracle was God moving it over here <laughs> and, then it fall, and then it fell, that miracle would be that, that action, that supernatural action that couldn't have occurred otherwise. It had to have been God stepping in. And so providence and miracle, two ways that God works, but they're different. And so they, they are trying to decipher, has a miracle occurred? And secondly, they're trying to decipher, is this man who worked this miracle from God? Is he from God or not? If you might remember from the last, how many, how many times ago it was that I was speaking, we, we defined uh, miracles, or defined the purpose of miracles as confirming a message and its messenger. That the vast majority of miracles in the Bible happen at specific times when God is speaking to humanity. And they're performed by the people who are bringing that message because that was the purpose of working those miracles to confirm that this message is from God and this person is communicating a message from God or from God. So understanding that, we can see the point in your outline here that the miracles acted as a confirmation that Jesus was from God but only if his message was consistent with God. You see, they're looking at the same action happening and part of the Pharisees are saying, well, this man's a sinner because he did this on the Sabbath and the other ones are saying, well, can a sinner do these signs? So how do we go embark on this same investigation knowing what they knew. You see, there's actually a passage in Deuteronomy 13 that gives us some of a framework to work with in terms of when someone shows up and does some miraculous signs. They're gonna have the, the passage on the screen and you can read along as I read it out loud here in Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass... And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. You see, the, the Pharisees that were saying, well, how can a sinner do things like that? They weren't looking at that in some odd, unbiblical way. No, that was a proper way of viewing it. Now, he's doing these things. Now, is he from God or not? But the other side of that coin is the message itself. This person is doing these things, what are they saying? Or is their message consistent with God or not? You see, we do have actual references to other people in scripture who were performing signs and wonders and yet shouldn't be followed. In the Old Testament, one of the most obvious ones is the magicians that were trying to copy Moses. Right, that Moses went before Pharaoh and he, and he had been given some things to do that God was gonna work through him to confirm and, and push things along that confirm that Moses was from God and that he was the one requesting this ask of let my people go and motivating Pharaoh to do it. Well, he drops his staff, right? And it becomes a snake. Well, Pharaoh brings in his magicians. They do the same thing. Of course, God is God, and so he has the one snake eat the other ones. That would have been really cool to see, by the way. But they were able to do it. Then next, turning the water into blood of the Nile. Moses does this as a sign. The magicians do it also. The third one, Moses brings out the frogs onto the land. 
And the magicians do it also. Now that's as far as it went though, because the next one was gnats and apparently that was just beyond their powers. They said, Pharaoh, no, 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 you gotta listen to this guy. This dude's from God. We can't do that. Let's move on. Let's, let's, let's start to look at this a little bit differently and they couldn't do the rest of them. But there were people that were doing these signs. In the New Testament, we have a very challenging passage in Matthew. Matthew chapter seven. Yep. <laughs> in which Jesus says there's gonna be people who will stand there that, in that one day looking towards the future, saying that we prophesied in your name, we cast out demons in your name, we did these things in your name, and God says, depart from me for I never knew you. Followers of something doing signs and wonders in the name of Jesus, and yet not believers. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse nine refers to a future individual that will come in the power of Satan performing signs and wonders but obviously shouldn't be followed. Now the message that that one, the Antichrist, will communicate will obviously be one that is not in line with God, not in line with the truth of scripture that we have revealed to us. And so, a bit of a conundrum there then, right? We've got the miracles and the message. Oh, wait, the Pharisees actually weren't taking issue with his message. <laughs> it's not even what they were doing. They had this filter to use, miracles, message, together, from God, listen to him. And yet, that's not even what they were taking issue with. You see, the Pharisees couldn't refute his message so they tried to find fault in his methods. They couldn't refute the message. It wasn't out of line with scripture. He was saying he was the fulfillment. He was the promised one. So they had to take issue with his methods. David mentioned last week that you know, his method of healing through the, the salve that was made with the mud put on the eyes was not really the point. And I agree. The Pharisees didn't. <laughs> The Pharisees tried to make that the point. It's not the first time that the Pharisees have majored on the minors, and it won't be the last. See, the, Jesus used a method that was going to be viewed as breaking some of their oral law traditions on at least two counts. One, healing on the Sabbath, and two, working by mixing a salve on the Sabbath. That is what those on that end of the, of the argument were pointing to. And what we'll see in just a minute is that they've already come to a conclusion because the hard heart sees what it wants. Let's move on to scene two. We see in verse 18 through 23, <clears throat> the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they, were, they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So we see that 
First, they looked into it, to this miracle. Secondly, now they look to dismiss it. And the motivation for the Pharisees is very clear. They are looking to dismiss this entire ordeal. They are hoping that they bring in the parents and the parents look and say, that's not our kid. He wasn't born blind. Some version of that. They want to just push it aside, sweep it under the rug. Their hope is that this man is lying in some way. They do not want to believe that a miracle has happened. Especially not on the Sabbath. But what about the parents? Just for a quick minute. It's very easy to read this passage and look negatively on these parents as cowardly, terrible parents. They just tossing their son to the wolves. I don't know that we have enough information to actually say that. Clearly, they were afraid. It does tell us they were afraid of what the Pharisees would do. Been, there had been a, a threat under, or at least the understanding of a threat going around about being cast out of the synagogue. And we would think, oh, such terrible parents. Their son was just healed and now they're not even gonna have his back? Well, we don't really know exactly what all was transpiring here. We don't know exactly what the parents knew. I mean, you would, I mean, I have two little girls, and if, I had, if one of them was born blind and, and years later was miraculously healed, I would be celebrating. And yet, though, if without a lot of time transpiring, if I had just found that out and didn't really understand what had happened, and I was brought in by, to the leaders in a, in a synagogue like that and said, well, will you, will you stand up for what, this, what your son is saying? My daughter, I guess, is saying... I might be a, a little unsure at that moment, not really knowing who this person was and what had transpired. I mean, their son was of age, so we know he's at least mid-teens at, at, um, at, at the lowest, but we don't know how old he is. We don't even know his name. Does that strike anybody as odd? It, it, it does me. Whole chapter, and he's just the man. <laughs> we don't have all the information. And so... Obviously, the parents are, are, are fearful a little bit here. They're trying to process what's going on, um, you would imagine. And so is this man who was born blind. The Pharisees don't get what they want because the parents are at least willing to state claim over this is our son, but they're not willing to go any further. And what we see next is that really the man himself was not trying to go a whole lot further. We go to scene three and we see that they're trying to remove it from sight. Verses 24 through 34. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have, already, I have told you already. And you, are, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why is this is an amazing thing? You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. 
Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Essentially, (laughs) confirming the reason for the fear of the parents. You see, they bring this man back in, and they say, listen, we already know this Jesus is a sinner. Just admit it. Give glory to God. We know he's a sinner. Just come clean. Tell us what really happened, and we'll let you go. We won't, we'll just put this, put this all aside, and we can all move on. The man who was formerly born blind did not want to get into all of that. Understandably, he was not educated like the Pharisees. He was not even fully sure of what happened. (laughs) He hadn't even seen Jesus yet. That happens next. I mean, physically seeing Jesus. So he tries to give a simple statement in response. He gives this very simple statement. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that, he, that though I was blind, now I see. He, he's just this is, he's like, this is what happened. <laughs> don't know, don't know I, I, I heard it was Jesus talking to me. You know, he, I think he prayed over me. I mean, this, this is what happened. So they start to push a little bit harder. And I think for those of us in the room that are parents, we've all been there. You hear one version of an event that happened and you don't entirely believe it at first. And maybe you're justified not to. And so you start poking. So tell me about this. All right, so tell me again, what happened? Trying to get your child to, to slip up and, and, and maybe unveil the fact that they weren't being completely honest. I've been doing student ministry for many years and that's, I, I found myself in that position a time or two, trying to decipher. One person says this, one person says that. It was, the, the couch was broken. How did it happen, right? And they're not really trying to figure out what really happened though. They're pushing him, trying to get him to trip up so they can use his words against him. And apparently, our blind man has a line, <laughs> I love sarcasm, and I love any passage that includes sarcasm, and so I love this passage. He's getting tired of being questioned and saying the same thing over and over and over again. And he says, I've already told you. You wouldn't listen. (laughs) Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciple? I think he said it with a smirk. I would have. Now, not saying that was a wise decision, on his behalf (laughs) because the very next words describe a pretty clear picture. They reviled him. They did not like his inference that they were wanting to be his disciples and they scoffed at it. And so what we see is his simple statement then his sarcastic slap to the Pharisees and the Pharisees' response to that that they dig in, we don't know who this sinner is, but we are disciples of Moses. We know who Moses is, we know the law that he brought for years and years and years. This is what we have done as children of Abraham, born into being a disciple of Moses. We know that's who we are. 
happens today too. There's a lot of people that are confronted with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and hold to whatever that traditional way of thinking is. Maybe it was, I was born and raised in this specific religion. And so I'm gonna take comfort and I'm gonna take shelter in this instead of dealing with the evidence. Maybe it's a a thought that, well, I'm so open-minded that no one religion can be true, and so you can just believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe, and we'll just stay away from each other. And I'll tolerate you as long as you don't tell me I'm wrong. Hard to get past that. A hard heart sees what it wants. (laughs) The ironic part is that they're claiming to be disciples of Moses, Moses, who brought them the law, who we know this, uh, this, or about which we know that this law is meant to be the thing that points us to Jesus. The law that whose purpose it was to be a tutor, to guide us to the fact that we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot do enough good things to outbalance the bad and hope that somehow when we die, the scales tip in our favor. That law from that man is the thing that they should have been reading and listening to and seeing that this Jesus was the fulfillment of it. And yet that law and that man is the one that they are holding on to, standing behind to not deal with the supposed sinner. Unfortunately, there's many people in this world that have this, what I consider to be a strange perspective and understanding. That somehow after death, they're gonna stand before God and get to argue their case. That what they believed while they were living on earth will somehow be heard out by God and they will get to debate with God and somehow, obviously, they're gonna win that debate and somehow hold whatever is in their mind, whether it's, well, you didn't reveal you enough to me or I was, I was born in this location, whatever it is, I'm gonna hold that up to God and say, see, do over. Let me in anyways. That's not how it works. We'll talk about a parable in a minute that d- describes that exact thing. But the blind, or sorry, the hard heart sees what it wants And these Pharisees were not seeking to really truly dig into this evidence and figure it out. We see right there, they said, we already know he's a sinner. This response that they give triggers our blind man to give a sighted summation of what is going on. Not trying to make some big theological um, full account of who Jesus is, but just from that perspective of he's done this thing, he's worked these miracles, he must be from God. That is this man's conclusion. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Like we said, I mean, I'd say that is an absolutely the correct way of looking at the person doing the miracle as long as that message is also consistent with God. Yet the Pharisees didn't see it. They had all the information they needed and they didn't see it. 
Just like us today. We have all the information we need to see the truth for what it is. One of my favorite um, parables of Jesus is the rich man and Lazarus. I don't know if you've read it before or not, and I may have even shared it in here before, I don't remember. But the rich man and Lazarus, depicting a rich man who had his blessings on earth, and Lazarus, the poor man who had the opposite. And after death, they're in two different locations. Lazarus in paradise with Abraham, and the rich man in torment in a place called Hades. And this rich man begs Abraham to send Lazarus to his family. Please send Lazarus to my family. I have five brothers and I don't want them to end up in torment like I am. Please send him to my family. They'll believe him. Abraham doesn't agree. Abraham says they already have Moses and the prophets. If they're not going to listen to them, a dead man rising to life is not going to convince them. They'll find some way to explain it away. So even after this passage, even after this investigation, a man was publicly killed and rose to life. And many still didn't believe. We have access to what we need. We have eyewitness testimony recorded in scripture. We know what his message was. And my hope and prayer is that every one of us in this room comes to that conclusion (laughs) with a soft heart. Looking at the evidence for what it is while fully understanding that a hard heart is gonna see what it wants.